Welcome back to the March of History, part two of our bonus episode all about life here in Spain and my travels and historical travels here in Spain. Again, I'm here with my brother and co-host Brendan. Hey, how's everyone doing? Uh, definitely excited to be here to discuss uh, Spain and some of the um, different things that I've been reading about that happens to be you know in the, in the same area, some of the historical uh eventuating to Spain discovering the New World and their interactions with uh, with Africa and the Muslim empires. And so, uh, yeah, definitely a lot of fascinating topics to talk about. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And if you haven't heard the first part of, of this episode, definitely go check that out. It has all sorts of things. We go off topic a lot, but I think it's good content. Even talking about dog-headed people around the world and yes. bishops, Brandon brought this up, bishops debating whether they had souls or not and therefore needed to be saved or whether they could be left alone because they had no souls. So definitely check that out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, ex- the extent to the, which they um, they believed in this stuff must have been pretty far to spend time debating, you know, seriously debating, <laughs> do these, uh, these synocephaly, these dog-headed people have souls or not? <laughs> we got to do a podcast episode on that sometime. That's That's too good. Yeah. Absolutely. So we left off in, in Caddies, and from Caddies, I, I called a blah blah car, which is kind of like a ride sharing thing they have here in Europe. Basically, you find somebody's driving from one city to another, and they say, Hey, I have three empty seats in my car. Does anyone want to chip in for gas money? And they put up their price, and you can search, Hey, I'm headed from, you know, I, or I need a ride from Caddies to Malaga. And then you find somebody and somebody's leaving at this time and somebody else is leaving at that time and they all put their prices. So then you you know, choose one and you message them and they say, perfect, let's do it. And you pay them money or I think the app holds it for a while. And so it's kind of like hitchhiking in a way, except for the fact that the app has all the personal information of the person you get in the car with and you know registers the time and the place that you met them. So presumably a lot safer. And it's, it's very popular here in Europe. So... We did that, took the blah blah car from Caddy's, drove past Gibraltar, which we can't visit because it's actually part of the British domains and is, is not part of Spain. So during coronavirus, it's locked off for us. And I'm sure Brexit doesn't help that. <laughs> but we then headed to the city of Malaga, which is an incredible city. I didn't really know anything about Malaga going there. I hadn't even heard of it maybe two years ago before I started visiting Spain. But my God, this city has incredible history. Brendan, have you heard about Malaga at all? You know, before I told no, you about I don't it, know much at all about Malaga. I was just going to make one comment about Gibraltar. That um, something that I learned the other day was that during World War II, I think it was World War II, uh, the British had Gibraltar, but then had to, I guess, kind of let it go um, when the Germans were coming. But they had like four people. Um, tunneled into the rock itself that would stay there and listen to um what the germans were doing if they did take it over you know basically just stay there indefinitely and they were there the whole time even when the british had it there they would just stay inside the rock and wait there in case the germans came and took it over and uh, i think eventually it never even happened but it's an interesting uh, uh thing that i learned about gibraltar that's crazy, and you gotta wonder what they're living on too. They have some huge yeah. supply of salted meats in there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, they would take like I think while the British were actually there before the Germans took it over or potentially took it over, they would do like six week shifts or something where they'd stay down there and then switch out. 
but yeah, no, it must have been a uh, you know tough tough living. Yeah, I've I've read that Gibraltar is just honeycombed with tunnels. You know, the rock yeah. itself is just honeycombed with tons of tunnels that the British have dug over many many years. Yeah. And it's the only place in Europe that has monkeys. That's right. Yeah, I I've even told Europeans that. Like, I think there was a some people I met from Eastern Europe that had no idea that there were monkeys in Gibraltar, <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, they're they're a big attraction in Gibraltar. I think yeah, the I, British Army even has people assigned to care for and track the monkeys, and it's supposed to be like a legend that as long as there are monkeys on Gibraltar, the British will have Gibraltar. Or you know, maybe I'm twisting that legend in some way, but it's something along those lines. Yeah, it sounds very convenient for them to say. I mean, it, considering that it's known to for always having monkeys, you know, it's sort of, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Let's see. As long as there are monkeys here, they've always been here, and we'll, we might as well just say that. So then we can say we'll always have it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we were talking about Malaga. So the reason you haven't heard of Malaga is it, it really was a, a Passover destination. It had a big airport for many decades in the 70s and 80s. It had a big airport, and I think even into the 90s. And people would fly into Malaga, and they would then drive to Gibraltar, or they would then drive to Granada, or they would drive somewhere in the area, either in the coast or in the countryside. So Malaga itself was just the airport you flew into. And nobody really stayed there. It's the pass-through zone. But that changed because the, the city put a big effort up to try to revitalize the city, to beautify it, to try to display their history. And my God, they have history to be displayed. They have a 2,000-year-old Roman theater right in the center of the city or, or near the center of the city that was built during the reign of Augustus and had been buried and forgotten and wasn't rediscovered until the 1950s, I think, when they were building to expand some kind of building under the dictator Franco, and boom, suddenly they, they ran smack dab into a Roman theater that nobody had remembered even existed. <laughs> so they put the building that they were building on hold, which is it's always probably a nightmare being a builder or a construction company in Europe because you have to hire archaeologists, as I understand it, to check every site. And you could be midway through your building process and stumble across some kind of history, and boom, your, your building is over. That I, I did not know that, that that's part of the zoning process is getting archaeologists in there. Is that, yeah, it's, I was going to say, like, I could see, like, you know, we're lucky that they didn't come across the amphitheater and just destroy it. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, it's very inconvenient for them. <laughs> That's what I've read, at least, and that people have told me is that you, you know, at some point in the zoning process, you need to have an archaeologist check the area. But you know, even then, you, you got to wonder, you know, if they if they always spot it. Well, in this case, I mean, I don't know what the regulations were like back in the fifties under Franco, right? Maybe it wasn't so strict as it is today. But they kind of were just digging in, like, oh, what is this? Rome, a Roman theater right here. So they, they since stopped construction of that other building. They have cleared out the Roman theater and. I mean, it's a beautiful Roman theater, and what makes it even more picturesque is that it is right at the foot of a thousand-year-old Islamic castle called the Alcazaba de Malaga. So you, you sit there, or you stand there, and you look at this Roman theater, and right above it on the hill above the Roman theater is this big, beautiful castle from you know a thousand years ago built by the Moors. So it's a wild combination of history to see those two on top of each other in Spain. 
Yeah, and I, and I think our members seen that on the March of History uh, Instagram page. So if anyone wants to see what it actually looks like, then you, you can go check that out on the, uh, the Instagram page. Yeah, definitely tons of pictures of Malaga and of that theater and of the Alcazaba on the Instagram page. It's also all on the Facebook page, too. Whatever's on the Instagram is on the Facebook. But the Alcazaba itself, I went in there and, and toured all through that, and it's incredible. I mean, it's beautiful Muslim architecture. At times, you feel like you're more in a garden than in a castle because there's all these beautiful trees and fountains and they have these kind of flowing fountains that flow down the footpath that you walk on. So it's kind of like, it's almost as if there was a sidewalk, but the sidewalk's made out of like, you know, little pebbles that are cemented together. And then in the center, there's a trough that is maybe a half inch deep that runs down the the path, you know, the path goes downhill and just water flows right through it. So, I mean, you, you can just kind of step into the trough and kind of rinse your shoes off if you wanted to. It's one of those things that you see in a lot of these Muslim architectures in Spain that you don't see anywhere else in Europe. I don't know if that description really brings it to life for you, but maybe I'll post a picture of it. And like Cadiz, Malaga is actually a very old city. It was also founded by Phoenicians back in the year 770 BCE. So that is a very old city. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other things that it has going for it is it has this massive cathedral, just known as the Malaga Cathedral, and it has the supports in place, pillars in place for two towers, but only one of the towers is actually constructed, and the second one is left unfinished. So the locals know the cathedral as La Manquita, which means the one-armed lady, because it only has the one tower and not the second. And the story goes, and whether this is accurate or not is, is up for debate. I've heard both. But the story goes that during the American Revolution, Malaga, the city itself, actually contributed a lot of funds to the American Revolution. You know, I, I'm not saying that it was a significant portion of what America needed to fight, but it was a significant portion for the city of Malaga, right? It was a lot of money, so much so that they weren't able to finish their cathedral. So the cathedral went unfinished because they donated this money to the United States in, in its infancy to help it. And as somebody from the U.S. who has studied the revolution, I have never heard that story until I came to Malaga and, and heard it from them. So that was pretty interesting. And this cathedral actually took, so, uh, I mean, I guess it was never really completed, but to the point where it's at now, it took 250 years to build because at various times they ran out of money and stopped and then they would start again under a different architect. But you can imagine how much style changes on buildings from year to year, never mind century to century. So the, the cathedral is built with multiple different styles with, I think, uh, I won't even try to butcher architecture styles because I don't really know them that well myself. But I think it has Gothic in it. I think it has maybe Romanesque or, or something like that. I have it all in, in my in my Instagram feed, I kind of list out the different architecture stru style structures that it has. But it's, it's this wonderful mix of different structure styles that even a layman like myself who knows nothing about architecture could tell looking at the pillars like, wow, you can see when they stopped working on this part and start, started working on it again 100 years later. Yeah, it, it does uh, amaze me like the long term projects that they did back in you know medieval times and before that, that it seems that we 
don't really do today. And I'm not sure what the reason is. I mean, the one thing though that you know is a big project that you know we had a lot of people come together and plan it over decades and decades is the uh, the large uh, Hadron Collider in uh, in Switzerland, in France. But um, oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, you know that's a little off topic. But but yeah, for the most part, though, I mean, if we're building a building, we're not going to spend decades, never mind centuries, a, a quarter of a millennia building it. So it is kind of, um, I guess they had a, a different sense of uh, long term thinking back then. But at the yeah, same, in some ways, you know, in those cases, in those cases, yes. But in other ways, you know, not so long term. But yeah, no, it's amazing because they didn't live as long back then, and you would be starting the construction on on a something that you would know that even your great grandchildren won't live to see its completion. Even their grandchildren may not live to see its completion. All of these generations will work on it from the day they come of age to be able to work, which in those days is pretty early, right? to the day that they die or, or can't work anymore. That's astounding. Yeah, and I guess it's it's largely uh, largely driven by religion, maybe, like them believing in natural life, and so maybe to some extent they feel like they will be able to, if not, you know, appreciate it and see it, reap some uh, rewards from it in, in natural life. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And and I think about the money that it takes to build these things. There's so much craftsmanship and so much detail that goes into it. And there's gold and there's silver and it's just incredible artwork. And in a time where they didn't have machines, right? This was all backbreaking labor. And you just got to wonder. I mean, they really don't build things like that nowadays. And I often wonder, well, you know, as, as a former banker, if you approach somebody and said, yeah, I want to build this cathedral, it's going to be these massive dimensions. It's going to be decked out with tons of gold and silver. Why? Just because it's going to glorify God, right? <laughs> and uh, it's going to take 250 years to build. And uh, yeah, I want to borrow some astounding amount of money to do that. You know, no bank would ever say yes to that, right? It would be, it would only be religious fervor that would fund something like that. Yeah, and, and even like within you know the past hundred years, things have gotten you know simpler and simpler. Like you go through New York, you don't see the the older apartment buildings will have ornate decoration at the top of the building, like kind of like this molding or whatever. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you don't even see that anymore either. And I mean, for good, many good reasons, of course, too, uh, like there's much less upkeep for, I mean, eventually, I guess those types of more complex designs is that, that architecture, the cathedrals will, if we stop making them now, then a hundred thousand years from now, they'll be gone. There won't be any, you know, so that's true. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. They, they last for a long time, but they don't last forever. Right. So yeah. eventually they will crumble. I mean, look at Notre Dame in Paris burned down. Yeah, and, and it's not like, um, I mean, yeah, technology advances and we get better at things, but that's not the same as being able to do the same things that they did back then. Like, we won't remember how to do it, you know. I mean, maybe we will. We could try to do it, but the first few times we try, I think it wouldn't even work out as well as them doing it back then with you know less technology because they were so practiced at doing it yeah i think a lot of that information has already been forgotten 
mean, yeah. when was the last time we've constructed a mega cathedral like that with that kind of detail and, and that kind of artistry? It's probably been a few hundred years, and I'm sure all that institutional knowledge is gone. And, I mean, it, it would have been – the craftsman working on something like that would have been master craftsmen that had institutional knowledge from their guilds and from their trades and from their masters passed down through the generations going back like a thousand years, right, to arrive at that kind of perfection that they were putting into practice on this cathedral. And like you said, even with today's technology, I don't know that it would look quite as good as it does from, you know, the way those guys did it by hand back then. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And even like uh, there's the uh, Notre Dame reconstructing that. I mean, of course, like part of the reason that we don't want to reconstruct is because the or I don't know, are they reconstructing that, or are they just doing something? They've gone back and forth. Some people said, oh, we want to build on that same place, but make it a modern church, <laughs> which, as a history buff, I hate the idea of that. But I think they eventually decided to, to make an exact replica of the cathedral, and I even heard that Assassin's Creed had done extensive right. mapping of the cathedral for their game and offered that mapping and and such to the whoever's going to be constructing it to try to help them make it more accurate. Yeah, that that's pretty crazy. Yeah, uh, it is. It is. I also heard uh, that at one point Apple had made a, a uh, what do you call it, a proposition to put an Apple store in there. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is more calculated to piss off the French than that. <laughs> yeah. Man, did they, they really did that? That's true. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah. I mean, that's the type of... I mean, they always do like putting their stores in like very iconic places. There's one in, uh, you know, the beloved uh, Grand Central Station of New York. There's one right in, you know, a, a kind of a key area of of the station there. If you ever see the station, it's like you know, a beautiful station with like very high, like very, very high, like vaulted, whatever you call it. Ceiling is like maybe more than five stories up. A big open space, and at the end of it, there's an Apple store. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's bad, but it, it's still nowhere near the sacrilege that sweeping up the ruins of the Notre Dame Cathedral would be in, and placing an Apple store there instead. <laughs> that yeah. would be sacrilege, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in multiple ways, for a history buff, for somebody who's religious, man. But getting back to, to Malaga, so you, you have that Alcazaba de Malaga with all of its beautiful gardens. And I mean, it's really a practical cathedral, too. Uh, I mean, not cathedral, castle as well. It's, it's definitely, it, it's up on this big hill. It overlooks the city. And back in the day, there would have been ring walls going out from this Alcazaba, this castle around the city. Uh, originally, it was built to protect the city from pirates. Now, like I said, the Alcazaba, the castle is on a hill overlooking the city. But that hill backs up to a much larger hill or maybe even a small mountain, you would call it. And on top of that small mountain is another castle called the Hebrafaro. And the Hebrafaro is another castle built around the same time as the Alcazaba. And the two castles, you know, one's on a, on a hill overlooking the city. The other one's on a small mountain above that overlooking both the Alcazaba and the city of Malaga. And they have a... a wall going between them up the hill between the Alcazaba and the Hebrafaro connecting the two so that they could connect, you know, reinforce the two with troops and send messengers, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I toured both those castles and from the Hebrafaro, it's amazing views of, of Malaga. And you realize that 
mean, Malaga's right on the coast. It's right on the beach, too, which is another thing that makes it great. And it, it's just surrounded in this kind of nice little bowl with mountains all around it. So a beautiful view from up there. But those castles were actually, they were definitely used, I think, during the Christian reconquest of Spain, uh, the Reconquista. There was actually soldiers had to storm up these giant hills to try to take these castles. So it's fascinating history to read about. They're mostly still intact today. The only thing that's kind of falling apart is the wall that connects the Hebrafaro to the Alcazaba. That kind of corridor is kind of crumbling, and they don't let you walk on that. But the rest of the castle, like you can walk on the walls. You can climb through them. And the Alcazaba itself, the Muslims, when they built it, actually used a lot of the material they found from the nearby Roman theater in the construction. Or maybe not a lot of material, but some material. So you can see pictures on my Instagram of these Islamic arches built using Roman pillars and Roman pedestals that seem like way out of place in the building. So it's interesting that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you imagine, I mean, we did that today. We, when they, when they found that amphitheater, they started using the stone to build whatever they were working on. (laughs) Like, yeah. But yeah, that is one thing that's interesting about the medieval times versus the, you know, antiquity or ancient times that, you know, while the Romans were super advanced, it was, it was not, it, it seems not an age of castles like uh, medieval times was that, that, you know, they started popping up later on, I guess. And it kind of um, means a lot for us because we get to still see them. Yeah, that's true. The Romans, they didn't really build castles. They built a lot of forts, but it seems like they were more temporary and, and more about offense. But not just the Romans. It seems like everybody in, the, in those days was, castles yeah, wasn't yeah. really a thing back then. Yeah. So yeah, so Malaga has it has the Roman theater, it has a cathedral, it's got the beach there, it's got two castles. It's an amazing city, and also it's a city where Pablo Picasso was born and spent the first X amount of his years, I don't know how long, uh, in that city, maybe up until he was 16 or something. And Antonio Banderas was, was born there too. Really, huh? Yeah, yeah. So I went to a Picasso museum when I was there. With lots of Picasso artwork, I gotta say I was I was not too impressed with Picasso. Maybe that's sacrilege to say, but it, it all looks like work that a little kid could do. Yeah, I, I don't know how uh, these art communities uh, these art communities come to a consensus on what's you know considered good or valuable. I mean, is it that at the time, if you were to see that, you would say, "Oh wow, yeah, this is you know," you would be in sync with them, and so you would given the same being raised in the same uh, time period, you would appreciate it. Or is it just that, you know, the art community is just, you know, <laughs> some syndicate agreeing on what's valuable and, you know, whatever they say goes. Yeah, no, it, it's a good point. I, I know one of the things to say about Picasso is that he was absolutely prolific. Like, he put out huge numbers of artwork. He was constantly working well into his elder years. I think he lived until he was in his 80s or 90s. But just the sheer number of Picasso artworks out there is just amazing. He was a true workhorse of an artist. But he's got quotes where he says that he could paint like Raphael at at 16. Raphael is the famous Renaissance artist, actually buried in the Pantheon in Rome. You can see his tomb. I've been there. But he says he could paint like Raphael at 16. It took him the rest of his life to learn how to paint like a child again. 
Yeah, no, it is. My, uh, yeah, and we, and we discussed in the past. I think that that quote, you know, where uh, I don't know, it may it may have been uh, Stalin, but uh, uh, quantity is a quality uh, on its own, and it's definitely true. I mean, I know that there's this one uh, famous mathematician, uh, Leonard Euler, and he was just so uh, prolific and produced so many works, just you know, books and and books of uh, works that. At some point in his like late middle age, he went blind, and so you would think like, oh, now he's going to start producing more slowly. But uh, he actually started dictating instead, you know, just talking to, speaking out his ideas to a writer, and he actually became more productive and started producing more works than he ever <laughs> <laughs> when he was blind. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah some people just are, are born workhorses. Who knows why their mind works that way? But yeah, I mean, Picasso, even in his own words, one, it's a very cocky statement to say I could paint like Raphael, who's one of the all-time greats when he was 16, he claims. Oh, he said that himself. Yeah, he said that about himself. Oh, oh I thought it was someone who said that about him. No, though. no, no. He he was also known to be very, like, have a lot of bravado and be have a lot of machismo and uh, very egotistical Picasso. But he said that about himself. But then also said about himself that it took him the rest of his life to learn how to paint like a child. And I'm paraphrasing. Maybe that's not the exact quote, but it, it's similar to that. But even he himself said he's trying to paint like a child. And you look at his, some of his paintings that, like, um, who knows how much these things sell for. It's like a little kid could do it. But then they'll, like, these, these art museums sit there and rave about him and say, but even though it looks like a little kid could do it, it follows all the different rules of, of this art and that art and very tough to do, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I don't see it. It doesn't look like great art to me. But, but uh, anyway, we'll move on from Picasso. The last thing I saw in Malaga was this old English graveyard, which was really cool, kind of overlooks the sea on a hill, and apparently it was the first Protestant graveyard ever allowed in Spain. Huh, first Protestant graveyard. Yeah, yeah. So it's an English graveyard, you said. So what they... What, had some kind of outpost there? Or? I guess, yeah, I guess they're... There's actually a big in- English influence on Malaga, and I, and I don't know if that's more recent from people from Gibraltar, but if you walk through the city, you can hear a lot of people speaking English, and everything just seems more – it seemed more of a familiar city to me walking around it than does Suelva or some of the other Spanish cities, which probably means that it's it's more influenced by English culture maybe. I don't know. I could be wrong about that. But we stayed in Malaga until New Year's Day. And then on New Year's Day, took a bus to Granada. And Granada is an incredible city. It's home to the Alhambra palace and castle that overlooks the city. It is at the basically Granada, the city itself, is located at the foot of the Sierra Nevada mountains. And it was the final kingdom to hold out against the Reconquista, the final Muslim kingdom to ever till like 14. It was around like 1492, sometime around then, that Isabel and Ferdinand finally retook Granada from the Muslims and completed the Reconquista. Okay. But because Granada is at the base of the Sierra Nevada Mountains, which are very tall mountains, when I was there, it was cold in, in, in January. It was, I was not prepared for how cold it was in southern Spain. 
I mean, it, it wasn't any colder than, say, New Jersey is on a, on a daily basis, but I didn't have clothes for that, right? And then sure. the buildings aren't built for that in Spain. That, that's one thing is you see, oh, it's, it's 60 degrees in January in Spain. That's nice. Okay, but the buildings don't have any insulation, and they're built to keep you cool during the summer, not warm during the winter. So you can actually end up being very cold on, on a 65-degree day here in Spain. And the place that I stayed at in Granada was like on top of this tall hill near to the Alhambra. But it was, I mean, it was an awful place, basically. It didn't have any kitchen. I thought we were getting robbed when we first got there because I, I called the Spanish number that says to call when you get there. And there was all sorts of complaints on, on the review site that we looked at that the person doesn't answer when you call them. And this crazy voice answers, right? And she's got this real high voice. She's like, hola, yes, si, si. And it, it didn't sound, uh, That's a. am sorry if I hurt your ears with that imitation, but it didn't sound like an old woman. It sounded like somebody pretending to be an old woman. And so, <laughs> and she could just tell me that like, oh yeah, come on inside, come on inside, go down this dark alleyway, this dark corridor where there's no lights. And I'm like, I'm about to get robbed here. It's, this, this is ridiculous. And she didn't seem like a real person. But then it all ended up being okay, and she, and she, I guess she was a real person because there were keys there, and, and we got into the apartment. And uh, but the apartment, you know, was on top of this mountain in in the freezing cold Granada, and, and it had no heat, <laughs> so it was freezing while we were there. But it, it was still an amazing city to see. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like a, a great, uh, certainly a great adventure. Yeah, I mean, imagine traveling back several hundred years ago. You know what that would have been like out nerve wracking. That would be just to, um, you know, no guarantee of safety at all. Yeah, <laughs> the roads between towns, and yeah, I mean, who knows? I don't even know how it would work. You get to a new town if you already schedule with someone. I get, I can't, I can't imagine that you would schedule with someone that you're going to stay at some place. I guess you just have to talk to people when you get there. I don't know. It's it's very true. I mean, I've often thought about traveling back in the day, and, and there's a reason why there wasn't really tourism back in the old <laughs> yeah. days. Because you know, Thanks. when you traveled, you took your life into your own hands. Yeah, it's literally like, uh, I mean, yeah, you were safe, I guess, relatively in a town, and you were else. Like, I mean, you just get killed. I mean, <laughs> yeah, by and even by the locals, they'd be like, "Who is this schmuck sitting in our pub? We don't know who this guy is. Yeah, yeah, not, you know, we can easily rob him and dump his body somewhere." Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you can imagine. I mean, I, yeah, there's still some nerve wracking things today. Me talking to that old lady, it, it sounded like such a fake voice. It did not sound like a real voice for a second. I thought I had a wrong number at first and somebody was just kind of trolling me and pretending to be whoever I you know, was looking for because the voice sounded so fake. And then when she told me that, like, basically, I know first she was only speaking in Spanish and then she asked me if I spoke English and I said yes. And then. Like she said, she didn't really have any English, but people in Spain always say that, and then they have way better English than you have Spanish. So, okay. uh, so then she started speaking some, some, some English to me, but it didn't sound like with a Spanish accent. It, it almost sounded French. It was weird, and she just kept telling me, "Oh yeah, open this door now, open that door now, walk down this very dark hallway," and I'm like, "Oh my God, where, where is she taking me? This, this is, this is not good," but yeah. it ended up being okay. Now, what is this? Uh, an Airbnb? Or <laughs> yeah, so I booked it through uh, Booking.com, and it was 
in Granada, there wasn't much because we booked this last minute because the government announces all of a sudden like, hey, we're going to allow everybody to travel between these dates. So it's like, oh, geez, let's, let's book it before it books up. And in Granada, there wasn't much between super cheap and super expensive. And since I'm living here in Spain, I, lo- I no longer make the banker's salary, right? I'm working a part-time job. Uh, I went for the cheap option thinking, ah, oh, it can't be too bad, right? <laughs> and it was kind of bad, but I mean, it wasn't so bad. I don't know. So, you know, when we got there, we didn't know what to expect. But the other thing was, it, it was such a, it was, it's on top of almost like a mountain. So it's a steep climb to get up there. And, you know, you're backpacking, so you're carrying a heavy backpack and you're, and you're hiking your way up to the top of this mountain and you're exhausted when you get there and then this lady's luring you in. <laughs> so it yeah. was, uh, Definitely. I mean, it, it's an adventure. It, it's one of the reasons I like traveling. It's it's interesting stories to tell, interesting things that happen to you. But anyway, getting back to the history of Granada, because Granada has a ton of history. Um, like I said, it's it's a very hilly town, but it's home to the Alhambra, which is on top of the, the main hill that overlooks Granada. And the Alhambra is an Islamic palace and fortress and series of gardens that extends over a huge area on this big hill overlooking the city of Granada with white-capped mountains in the background you can see from the Alhambra. And so I have tons of pictures on, on our Facebook and Instagram for the March of History showing all this and videos. But the Alhambra just has beautiful, beautiful, beautiful architecture and at one point it had become dilapidated well first when ferdinand and isabella took it they thought it was beautiful enough to make it into like their new i believe headquarters they made it um or at least one of their main palaces and then at some point throughout granada's history it became dilapidated and it was a squatting place for bums and hobos so you can imagine being some kind of homeless guy living in the alhambra palace (laughs) it's incredible and it's not even like it I mean, I guess maybe that's a common thing because, like, you hear the same thing about the Roman Colosseum. It's just like a like a slum, like kind of. It was a know. garbage dump. The Colosseum is <laughs> what they told us when I when I went to when I was living in Rome. Uh, we we had a history class that we took uh, when I studied there, and they told us that it was where like Italians threw their trash was into the Colosseum. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess it, it it's really like sheds light on the fact that tourism is really like a as you were saying before like there's no tourism back then it really is like a new thing like you know the past even just like within the past hundred years or so i mean i guess wealthy people back in the day would travel a lot but not much else uh not many others than that yeah yeah and on that front i know the renaissance was at least in part and i think in large part sparked by a renewed interest by Italians in all these Roman ruins around them that for who knows how many hundreds of years, they hadn't really questioned. And then some people started to think, or first it started out as like just, you know, cool adventurism. Let's go explore these old ruins. Right. And then some smarter people sort of think, well, hold on. Like, look at this arch. Look at this. Look at that. These are things that we can't even build today. Who built this? Who were these people? And they started uncovering their writings and they started uncovering their their you know stories and Caesar's Gallic Wars and the letters from Cicero. And they started reading all these things and they started realizing, my God, the ancient world was so much more sophisticated than we are today. And that that thought was like a 
you know, a lightning bolt to them. Like, who knew, right, that there was this ancient civilization here that was way more advanced than us. That must have rocked their world because you you think of becoming more advanced over time, not that there was this ancient, more advanced civilization. And so they started focusing on the classics, as, as we call them today, and, and reading more about them and studying them more. And that's what caused, or at least in part, what caused the Renaissance. Yeah, no, I, so again, back to uh, the Silk Roads, that, that book I've been reading, they were saying that um, the author was was arguing that he would say it was more of a uh, a naissance than a renaissance. In other words, it was a birth, not a rebirth, because uh, it, it uh, I guess the, the renaissance depicts Western Europe returning to you know, the values of the, the Greco-Roman world. But, I mean, they never had it in the first place. I mean, I guess Italy itself did because it was Rome, but, like, France and the rest and all, you know, the rest of Western and Northern Europe, that they, um, you know, never really had those things to begin with. That may be argued. But, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. At least the people that, um, like, the tribes that took over Italy, they, they were not the Romans. And so I guess in that way it makes sense. Yeah. And, but I mean, the Gauls are, you know, still became pretty, uh, I guess, uh, assimilated with, with the Romans. Romanized. So, yeah. yeah. But I, I guess it's relative to the Greek East. They're much more, they're much more always the inheritors of that Greek uh, Roman tradition. I mean, Constantinople was the capital. Yeah. So I guess, I guess the author was saying relative to them, you know, they were really the, the, uh, the descendants rather than, than Western and Northern Europe. And, yeah, uh, that, that makes sense in a lot of ways. The West was the place that was overrun by the barbarians. Right. And, and not just overrun physically, but you got to think like it seems like their culture was almost overrun by barbarians because the East continued to behave in, and call themselves Rome long after Rome fell versus the West seems to have lost that culture, at least for a time. Yeah. And another thing that I'd, I'd seen, this might have been some some video or something, but um, was that another factor or cause of the Renaissance was the fall of Constantinople because the the Turks, the Ottomans had let the um, the scholars and the artisans and all these you know learned people from Constantinople leave, and many of them went to Italy, and so that kind of spurred the um, the Renaissance and. You know, looking more into these classics, and you know, they took all the knowledge they had from Constantinople and, and brought it over to to Italy. Ah, okay. Now that you say that, I I, ha- I do remember reading that at some point. That's interesting, huh? Yeah, yeah, like with anything, there's always it's always tough to to pinpoint one cause of any any historical yeah. event, right? There's usually multiple, and where the percentages lie for how much each one contributed, who knows, right? You know, it's something that you can argue over drinks sometime, but I don't yeah. think anybody really has the answer. You know, I was going to actually, and to loop it back into uh, sort of Spain through Columbus is uh, um, another result of the fall of Constantinople was that. There was no longer a, I guess, a Christian route to the east over land, and over land, and so it was tougher to get all the spices and stuff from India, and so that also encouraged uh, people like Columbus to try to look for another route to to India, and so you know, two big things that perhaps the fall of Constantinople. Uh, yeah, if, if that's the case, and that, that's a massive event in history yeah, that yeah. I feel like most people don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, the Alhambra itself in Granada, like I said, was the, the final kingdom that because at various times, you know, it wasn't just one Islamic empire that ruled over Spain or areas of Spain. You know, the, at different times, Cordoba declared that it's a caliphate now, or Granada was a separate kingdom, and then they became reunited and then broke apart, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Well, Granada was the final kingdom. And so the Christian armies lined up, you know, surrounded Granada, and the Muslim ruler, a man named Bobadil, or he's known in Europe as Bobadil, he's known in Islamic texts as something else. Oh, I forget no. off the top of my head. Bobadil, yeah. <laughs> he gave up the Alhambra. The Alhambra is a massive set of fortifications. And if you, go on, if you go on the March of History Instagram or Facebook, you can see them. It is massive, right? And it would be very tough to, to get through these fortifications. But Bobadil surrendered it without a fight. And, you know, it, it seems astounding that he would do that, especially when you walk around the Alhambra and you see they have their own orchards inside this castle. They have fresh water, you know, springs and streams that, that have been re-diverted to, to run through here. So, you know, it's a self-sustaining castle and palace ab- above the city of Granada. But he surrenders it without a fight. And I think this is the beginning of the age of gunpowder, too. So maybe it's, it's possible that with, with cannons, I think Isabella and Ferdinand had cannons, they probably could have demolished the shreds. But Bobadil's been criticized of course throughout history for being a coward or and for abandoning his home and et cetera, et cetera. But if he doesn't do this, if he stands and fights and Isabella and Ferdinand take their big cannons and pulverize the Alhambra to nothing, then we have none of this history to see today. So we have Bobadil surrendering his home without a fight to thank for the fact that we have the Alhambra intact today. And the story goes that when Bobadil was walking he was allowed to leave peacefully because he surrendered peacefully when he and his family and all their servants and presumably slaves and everybody else that comes with their household is leaving granada he turns back for one final look at the city of granada and at the alhambra palace and he begins to weep he he sheds some tears and his mother a very tough woman and uh, actually a descendant herself of the prophet muhammad says to him quote Weep like a woman for a kingdom you could not defend as a man. That's some tough love from an yeah. old world mother. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean, history, I hope, I mean, yeah, certainly has vindicated him. I mean, I mean, definitely, you know, he was ahead of his time to, uh, to realize that it's, you know, I mean, there's really nothing to gain from making a stand there. I mean, that he can keep all of his, it's not as though the people that he's, um, I mean, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there's some things that gain, but I mean, ultimately, he'll have like still like most of the power he had before. It has to move locations and can say preserve this, uh, you know, magnificent, you know, architecture and building and, and whatever. But, but yeah, uh, and yeah. and it truly was his home. I mean, his family had lived there for generations, for centuries, okay. right? <laughs> So it's not like he had come in there later in life for something. But I, I don't really know what happened to Bobadil after this because I do know I've been reading a book about some of this Andalusian history and there was some other ruler of Granada that then got chased out by the Christians and he was a fierce fighter and and really fought hard and and had many victories and but eventually he lost and he had to flee to North Africa and the ruler or governor of that part of North Africa basically seized the guy blinded him put out his eyes and made him a beggar in the street that wore a sign that said, 
this is the old ruler of Granada. Here he is a beggar in the streets now or, or something like that. So <laughs> this was who exactly what was his position? This was uh, I think this was maybe like Bobadil's uncle or something. Yeah, he he had because I think that these two had fought with each other as to who ruled Granada. And at one point the uncle had I could be wrong on this, but at one point the uncle had and then Bobadil had betrayed him and made a deal with the Christians, et cetera, et cetera. But th- this guy had been a tough, hardened veteran that had fought hard from what I re- remember. But the ruler of North Africa was not impressed with this guy and basically said, well, why didn't you die on the battlefield? You know, you're here, you ran, put his eyes out, made him wear you know, this proud man, wear this plaque saying that, you know, here's the once one time ruler of Granada or something along those lines. Um, and, you know, here he stands, a, a poor beggar in the street now. What a change for your life. You imagine that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's. I mean, even if it was something that happened today, you'd be far removed from it. And while you'd be horrified by it, it wouldn't be the same as experiencing it. And, uh, you know, when you look back at history, it's even further away. But, yeah, to actually be there, I mean, you give up your home and everything and, you know, in exchange for peace. And, you know, ultimately you get your eyes your eyes gouged out instead. <laughs> yeah. And this guy didn't even surrender. He just lost and had to flee. You know, um, like he actually stayed in fault. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I've often thought in history when you see like there's a Roman emperor who is captured by the Persians and supposedly from then on, I mean, there's different rumors about what happened to him. He's the first Roman emperor ever captured alive. But one of the one of the legends is that the Persian, um, I don't know if it's a king or a sultan that they referred to him as, but would use the Roman emperor as a step to get on his horse each day. (laughs) So something about that yeah yeah so see these stories always fascinate me of these incredibly on top proud individuals who are brought so low and so quickly and the ancient world has this incredibly dramatic way of doing that right it's never like subtle or simple it's using the guy as your stool to stand on and get onto your horse it's putting somebody's eyes out and making them a beggar in the street that's why ancient history is so interesting because you know, everything is thrown into stark relief. But you think about a guy like Caesar and all the victories he had. If at any point he was captured by Gauls, they could have put out his eyes and made him wear a plaque around their town saying, hey, I was the one-time consul of Rome. Here I am now, a beggar in the streets, right? Yeah. You know, I have noticed that theme that they have no respect for an enemy uh, ruler. You know, they do capture him. It's like, I mean, I feel like today... There is a head of state, like there's still some regard for that person, like is they're a powerful person or they, you know, they're talented or whatever. But like you know, with uh, you know, when they captured a person, person Gatterix, did I say that right? Yeah, well, we haven't covered that part in the podcast yet, though, so I don't know if I want to give it away. Okay, okay, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's no, yeah, there's no uh, respect. And there's deliberate disrespect to a, a captured a enemy ruler. Yeah, the the Rome the or the ancient world was brutal, and the medieval world was too. I mean, there's not much in the way of empathy or sympathy for anybody. But getting back to Granada, it's a, it's a, it's a city I highly recommend visiting, preferably in in warmer weather because it does get very warm. I've been there in summertime too, and it was very warm and beautiful. 
But it, it's just an amazing city. There's tons of history. The cathedral there was was closed for us, unfortunately, because of Corona. But there's also lots of nature around Granada. You know, you can be out and hiking in the hills. I spoke to a German guy that said that he had hiked in the hills all around Granada and said it was amazing. Granada is also only an hour from the beach. So you can get down to the coast in an hour by car. It's a huge university town with something crazy. Like it has like 70,000 students in the, in the University of Granada system. Something something outstanding like that. That just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also unique in that it's it's one of the few cities in Andalusia where if you just buy drinks, they will bring you food. Like you'll get like a small dish of food with each drink you order. Oh, really? Yeah. So <laughs> that's kind of like usually you get food and then you get a drink with it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this trip I was doing, I was doing with, with my girlfriend, Maddie, who's here in Spain with me. And we sat down and we order drinks and the drinks are pretty cheap and then they bring out food and they or they bring out a menu and they say, well, what item of food do you each want with your drink? And we're like, what? So we, we pick an item and then we thought we we're going to get ripped off with some outrageous bill because in Spain, a lot of times they don't print prices next to the to the drinks, but it wasn't that way at all. And so we end up leaving there after one drink and one meal because we thought we we're going to get ripped off and it, it wasn't expensive at all. So we went to another place. And this guy had like homemade wine and, and barrels he was pouring for us. And it was the most delicious wine I've ever had in my life. I took pictures of the barrels because he had the names on them. Uh, I'm going to try to find this wine again, but I'm not usually a wine fan, but this was delicious. And, yeah. you know, the guy's bringing us out free food with the drinks and, and all sorts of free stuff. And at the end, he only charged us for like a fraction of the drinks that we drank. And I spoke to Spaniards about this. How did he do that? He's, I guess he owns the place. He's an older guy. I don't know. But I spoke to Spaniards. Like, I mean, he just felt like doing that? or Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I spoke to Spaniards and they said, oh, yeah, that kind of stuff is common in Granada. It only happens in Granada. They just like people in Granada are like that. <laughs> oh, good people. Yeah, yeah. The other cool thing that I had wanted to see in Granada but didn't get a chance to see is they have – Basically, Sevilla or Seville and Granada both compete and say that they are the founders of flamenco, which you know, flamenco dancing and music, which comes from Andalusia. Granada, I've seen it in in Seville. Granada has it in these caves. Well, they say that they're caves, but they're really like you wouldn't know you were in a cave. It's like a building built into the side of a mountain, right? And they say that the flamenco started in these caves, and so they still perform them in these caves, and so. I wanted to see one of those, but with Corona, they're not letting people into enclosed spaces like that. So wasn't able to see that. But another cool thing you can see in Granada. But in Granada is when I got quite a shock because on New Year's Day, like I said, we left Malaga. We got to Granada. We're hiking to this new location You know, with the sketchy landlord that we're going to be staying at. And I get a call from my roommate in Huelva. And he tells me, or he texts me first and says, it's an emergency, you know, can, can I call you? And I'm like, yeah, well, yeah, sure. And so he calls me and he says that there's been a fire at our apartment. I'm like, oh my God, I have so much stuff there. It's all burned down, right? And he says, no, no, he goes, there's a fire actually, because English was not his first language. So he tells me that the fire was actually at the bar below our apartment and now our apartment didn't catch a fire at all, but it reeks of smoke. And he sent me a video. It's, it's covered in smoke. They have to ventilate it all. And 
so, you know, we find this out and when we come back from Granada to just a smoke filled apartment, just absolutely disgusting. It reeked of smoke. I'm getting chest pains from it. Other people are getting allergies from it. The landlord, you know, we thought she was going to bring in like a, a fire uh, or a fume mitigation or fire mitigation company. Instead, she just has like her partner come in with a mop and, and <laughs> clean everything and insisted that nobody be in the apartment when this happened, presumably because she didn't want us to see who was cleaning it. They even, it's a whole long story, but I, I guess the one guy didn't get the memo and he stayed in the apartment and he saw that it was just this woman's partner cleaning the apartment and not an actual company that's professionals. And then she, the landlord got very angry about this and told us that the, she wasn't going to clean it at all at that point, or at least not that day. And so we end up getting this huge argument with the landlord and, you know, she's mad at us saying, well, I've already cleaned it once. Uh, if I clean it again, maybe you guys say that it, it's still too smelly and smoky for you. So like that was her perspective was that if she cleans it another time, well, maybe we're still not satisfied. So then what? She's got to clean it another time. And I'm uh, and I'm thinking in my head, well, yeah, it, it's your duty as a landlord to provide a, a safe living space for your tenants so eventually we end up having to find a new apartment and move out of that apartment and find a new place. But like, my God, what a, what a new year's headache that was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, thick smoke like that from a building burning, I mean, it's not going to go away, you know? Yeah. yeah and at the very like, least you should wash the curtains and they weren't even yeah. doing that until I asked them and then, you know, they're rolling their eyes and acting like this is such a chore and why are we being this way? And, you know, there's a language barrier, too, because I don't really speak Spanish and they don't speak any English. And the landlord, I mean, I'm sure she's a good person, but she's extremely headstrong and just thinks she's right all the time. and Doesn't want to deal with anybody telling her anything other than that. Um, even the, the Spanish guy that was living with us said that about her. And he had he had been living there for quite some number of years and, you know, had the same language as her. And, and, and he said that about her. So she was difficult to deal with. We were getting utility bills that didn't seem right or for the wrong apartment number. So it was a combination of things. It's like time to get out of there. So we're in a new apartment now, much better. But it was difficult for a while to, to keep putting out podcast episodes while arguing with the landlord, trying to clean the place because the landlord wasn't doing it, finding a new apartment, moving out. It was a lot of a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, I think like back in the day, this is the kind of dispute that probably someone would end up getting killed over or something. And then it, you know, yeah. ends up being like a, you know, a, a, some kind of blood feud and, you know, last the, the whole lifetime of the, uh, the people involved. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, it, it got all sorts of sketchy. Like she was telling us at first that she couldn't clean the place because she's waiting for insurance money, specifically insurance money that would be paid out by the bar who had the fire to her. And then she goes, okay, well, okay, now we can finally clean because we've got the insurance money. But then she's got her domestic partner coming and cleaning. So we're like, we don't understand it. If, it, if it's just your partner cleaning, then what were we waiting on insurance money for? Why do we, we're sitting here living in this smoky environment without it being cleaned because we're waiting for insurance money. We assumed you were hiring a professional company then. So, you know, what happened to that money? Did you just pocket it? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure she must have. Yeah. 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 Wonder, um, does she have any relation to the owner of the bar or? No, I don't think so. The owner of the bar, the the bar is a whole other story too. It's kind of yeah. the, the Erasmus bar here. Um, Erasmus is like the study abroad here is what they call it. 
And so that's where all the Erasmus kids go to party. And so they don't really enforce masks at all. And like everybody's all on top of each other with no mask, which I mean, maybe that's not considered unusual in some parts of the world, depending on your Corona laws. But in Spain, that's like people are blown away when they see that. They're like, what? Like, that's not allowed at all. This bar was not following any rules. And then they just burned down New Year's Day, which has led some people. And I'm not saying that I believe this, but it has led some people to to wonder if if it was burned down for insurance money because the bar was hurting because of corona and maybe sold they could make some more money this way than they could opening and and breaking covid restrictions and getting fines so (laughs) there was a lot going on Uh, crazy stuff i don't know if that's true or not you know and i'm not casting aspersions on them it's just what some people had said to me they thought might have happened yeah i mean it's certainly plausible especially with covid i mean something that could happen normally but never mind with you know, circumstances like uh, with COVID where clearly, you know, you're not going to be getting nearly as much uh, business as you usually would. Yeah, 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 definitely. As far as the Andalusian tour, we ended up, oh, one thing I forgot to mention, I was actually in Granada on Reconquista Day, the day that the, you know, Ferdinand Isabella retook Granada, which apparently is not so much a holiday anymore as it used to be. It's kind of considered like a politically incorrect holiday, you know, kind of like Columbus Day is in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, but still, it was cool to be in Granada in the Alhambra on Reconquista Day. And the final stop of the trip was in Sevilla or Seville, but that was only for a day. And everything was closed because it was Three Kings Day, and that's basically their Christmas here. And I've been to Sevilla before, and I don't think we're going to do talk about it on this podcast. So maybe we'll a separate episode I plan to go there again and, and really explore some of the history there and see Columbus's tomb. So maybe Brendan and I will talk about it on a different podcast episode. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Oh, and the other thing I had said in my previous episode, or at least in episode 33, I think it was, whichever the last one with Caesar was, that I was taking a second Andalusian tour uh, around Andalusia during spring break, during Santa Semana, the Holy Week here. That's not happened because they have canceled or they have not allowed us to travel outside of our province, which is Huelva. And there's no, there's no big cities with a lot of history in Huelva. So I won't be taking that Andalusian tour, but I am exploring some of the local history and some Pueblos here. It's amazing. Like It seems like every little Pueblo, which is what you call like a small town here, has a castle or has a cathedral. And you just wonder where these little Pueblos got money for castles and cathedrals from. Yeah, no, they must have yeah, really uh, cared a lot about it. Yeah, but uh, caring is one thing, but getting the funds to build your own castle, like some of these little pueblos are like backwaters, and it's like, oh yeah, we have a castle, and they do. It's a legitimate castle. It's 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 got big walls and everything, and it's like, wow, how how are it just it makes me wonder how many castles there are in Europe because you know when even small little towns have. I mean, they're not mega castles. They're not the kind of things you see on like Instagram or something where it's like, oh, wow, look at that. But it is a good-sized castle, and it's bigger than just a tower. And when even small towns have it, you wonder, like, how many are there in Europe? It's incredible. Yeah, that's, that's again, back to the whole castle thing. I don't quite understand. It seems like all of a sudden, it, you know, sometime in the Middle Ages, castles started springing up or something. But why... Like, why were they not built before that? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's just an abstract idea. We're going to just stack stone on top of each other, and there's a whole learning process to doing that in a way that's that's not going to collapse. And 
the idea that it's, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's a, it's a change in military mindset too, from offensive to defensive. I don't know. It's a good question. Yeah, it, it seems because I mean, supposedly the Romans should have been advanced enough to do it. Yeah. I, you know, it never happened. And maybe, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was just something that was, you know, the thing to do in that day, like, you know, build a castle. And I mean, maybe it wasn't as, uh, I mean, I don't know how functional they, they all were. Or if it was just, you know, seen as a, you know, a testament to a certain town's, you know, power or something or their strength, you know, if they're just flexing on people or, or what it was. Yeah, or if they found themselves maybe being in the border between two rival factions and one faction took the town and said, oh, well, we need to have some kind of defense for it, so we're going to build a castle. Maybe it served its purpose for 200 years, and then it wasn't a border anymore, and, and now it seems like, well, what is this castle doing here, right? Yeah. But So, yeah, I'm going to post plenty of, of videos and photos for that, and I'm doing more and more videos, too, I think, uh, for the Instagram and Facebook pages and the Twitter too, because I just think it's it's cool content. It brings it to life more for the audience. It makes you feel like you're there. You can get a better feel for what's going on. And hopefully, I'll start some kind of YouTube channel soon. I got kind of sidetracked with the whole fire and having to leave the apartment and everything. But I'm hoping at some point soon, I'm going to get a camera and and start that. So it'll be some added content, some history, some travel, some travel history. A mix of everything, you know, but I think that's where we're going to end this episode today. It's been fun. Brian and I have enjoyed talking about Spain here and just random tidbits of history and cities that I visited, but we've had a good time. And if you guys enjoy these kind of bonus episodes, we can definitely do more. We have these kind of conversations anyway, so we're happy to do more. If you, if you like it, if you do like it, let us know. Also, feel free to give us a rating on the podcast store on Apple. If you enjoyed the podcast, if you didn't enjoy the podcast, please don't leave a rating. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. But that's about it. And you can follow us. It's at the March of History, I believe, is the uh, Instagram at March underscore history. It's all from the top of my head is the Twitter. You just search the March of History on Facebook and feel free to share this podcast with anybody you know that loves history and, and enjoys a history podcast like this. And that's it. So we appreciate you listening and we will be back with the next episode on the March of history.